Let me invite you not to turn to the book of Acts tonight, but actually one book over to Paul's letter to the Romans and to chapter 16. Romans 16. Since we spent time on Sunday considering the importance of deacons and the importance of other servants in the church as well, I thought it would be good to expand on those thoughts tonight by revisiting this passage that we considered a little over a year ago and letting it speak to us again. So I just want to pause now as we open to Romans 16 and ask God to make that so, um, that he would open our hearts tonight, that he would illumine our minds and let us hear his voice from this final chapter of the book of Romans. Father, thank you for uh, this book of Romans and all the great uh, gospel truth that it teaches. And as we turn to the final chapter of it tonight, I pray that uh, the outworking of the gospel in the lives of your people would be clear and powerful and encouraging and motivating to us. So speak to us tonight from Romans 16, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This letter to the churches in Rome comes at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, somewhere around the year 57 AD. For 10 years, Paul has been traveling throughout the Mediterranean world on three separate missionary journeys, preaching the gospel and establishing churches. And now as he writes this letter, he finds himself, it would seem, in the city of Corinth uh, in what we call Greece, and he is desiring to make a fourth missionary journey, this time to the very western edge of the known world, really, uh, to Spain. But on his way to Spain, Paul hopes to stop off in the great capital city of Rome and visit the church there, build the believers up in the faith, and garner their support for his most enterprising journey yet. Paul had never yet been to Rome, and so this letter serves as a kind of introduction to him and to his ministry. He is saying, in effect, in this letter, I'd like to come and preach in your services, benefit from your fellowship, ask your support for the work in Spain. But if you're going to hear my preaching, and if you're going to support that preaching in Spain, you should know exactly what is the gospel that I preach. That's a good policy for any missionary to adopt, incidentally. You should know the gospel that I preach. And so Paul writes this letter to the churches at Rome as a summary of his preaching. And it comes down to us as one of the great summaries of the gospel that we have. But he wrote it to let the church know what he preached, to show them that he's sound and orthodox, and in so doing to provide later generations with this marvelous summary of the gospel as a byproduct. So that's the content of Romans chapter 1 through 15, Paul's gospel, his introduction of himself to this church that he's never visited. But because Paul had never been to Rome or visited these churches did not mean that he was an unknown quantity to them. On the contrary, this final chapter, which as you will see is filled with personal greetings from Paul to particular Roman believers, demonstrates that Paul knew many of these Roman Christians in person. How so? Well, They must have met one another somewhere else along Paul's travel itinerary is uh, probably what was the case with most of them. Some of them 
Uh, perhaps were from other cities in which Paul had preached. They had sat under his ministry in their own hometowns, but now they'd moved to the capital city for work or for some other reason. Some of the folks that he knows perhaps were native Romans, but they'd met Paul on their own travels for business or military, etc. Some of the Roman Christians might have been missionaries themselves and encountered Paul on the mission field uh, and There may have been others in this church whose faces he'd never seen, but whose reputations for godliness had preceded them so that Paul knew them, though he didn't actually know them. But whatever the individual cases, Paul is writing this letter to a church in a city in which he's never set foot, but a church whose members, whose believers, he was quite familiar with at least in many cases. And as he does with so many of his letters, he concludes this one with personal salutations to those folks, those acquaintances in the church. And we'll see that in verses 3 through 16 in particular. He also concludes with greetings from a handful of men, not in the church in Rome, but men who are with him where he's writing the letter in Corinth. And I just want you to hear all of these different names and Paul's commendations of them as we read through this chapter together. We'll read the first 16 verses and then skip down and read verses 21 through 23. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Sancria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Eponidas, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And then verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who, wrote, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Cortus, the brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I think we might summarize the names that are in this list or these two lists using 
that phrase from verse 3 that Paul specifically applied to Prisca and Aquila. These folks are my fellow workers. That's largely what this list is comprised of. Paul's fellow workers in the great cause of the gospel. Now, of course, Paul doesn't specifically say that of every person on this list, that they were a gospel worker, although he says it about a number of them. But he speaks so glowingly of all the folks in this chapter that I think it's safe to assume that all of these people played a key role in the work of the gospel in Rome or in Corinth and elsewhere also. They were probably all gospel workers in one fashion or another. And so I select that phrase in verse 3, I think, as, as a good summary and as our theme for tonight, my fellow workers. Indeed, those three words will form the three headings under which we'll proceed tonight. So first, I want you to notice Paul calls these people my fellow workers, fellow workers. Now, Paul was, of course, a great worker in the gospel himself, right? He wrote roughly half the books in the New Testament. He established churches all over the Roman Empire. He trained elders in those churches. He suffered persecution and shipwreck and sickness and so on for the sake of the gospel. He stood before kings and it would seem even perhaps before the emperor himself proclaiming the message of life in Christ Jesus. There was never a Christian worker as competent as the Apostle Paul, and there was never one who worked as hard as he did, I don't think. He could say without a hint of exaggeration in 1 Corinthians 15:10, I labored even more than all of them. There was never a Christian worker like Paul, And yet we're reminded here in this chapter and in verse 3 in particular that even the great apostle needed fellow workers. Even the omnicompetent apostle of the Gentiles could not go it alone. If you read the book of Acts, as we've been doing, when we get to Paul, we will see that he always worked as a part of a team. And we see that here in Romans 16, don't we? He is at Corinth writing this letter, and in verse 21, it's clear that he has a team of men working with him. And that's really what all the names in Romans 16 represent, a team of gospel workers, a gospel network. Now, I count 30-plus different individuals who are mentioned here in this chapter between the cities of Corinth and Rome, all of them important enough For Paul to mention them in this letter, all of them important because of the way that they loved him and served him and served the gospel as fellow workers. Maybe some of them in his past missionary journeys had been helpful to them. Others of them were serving in their present location in Rome. They were workers. The church of Rome was thriving, not mainly because of the apostle Paul. He'd never been there. The church in Rome was thriving because of all the little people whose names we don't recognize and whose names are so difficult for us to pronounce, right? The people like Asyncretus, verse 14, and Phlegon and Hermes and Petrobus, Hermas and the brethren with them. And the same was true in Paul's missionary work. It thrived not simply because of Paul, whom we know, but because of these other men who come in in places like verse 21, whom we don't know. Paul couldn't go it alone. He needed fellow workers. And that is, I think, one of the main lessons that we're to garner from Romans 16. 
Local churches thrive and missionary work advances, not just because of leaders like Paul, but because of Phoebe's and Tryphena's and Tryphosa's and Jason's and Sosipater's and so on. And that is true in this church as well and of our missionaries. Your elders rely on a team full of fellow workers about whom we need to be able to say, verse 12, and in many cases can say, he or she worked hard in the Lord. And your missionaries as well rely on Priscas and Aquilas, verses 3 and 4, who will give their all for the sake of the mission. And each of you who believe have great potential to be among those fellow workers. Sometimes we read the Bible and we assume that all the people whose names made it into the good book must have been super saints. But if you look hard at the faces in the crowd in Romans 16, what stands out, I think, is that by and large, Paul's fellow workers, these people who were so important to the apostles' great gospel enterprise, were just a hodgepodge of normal everyday folks whom we know very little about. In fact, I think you'll agree that their faces probably looked a lot like our own. They came from all different nationalities. For one thing, William Hendrickson, in his New Testament commentary on Romans, discusses sort of the national linguistic origin of some of these names. And what I've realized is, like the words affixed above Jesus' head on the cross, these names are written also in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. And there's a diversity of genders as well. John Stott, in his commentary on Romans, points out that Paul's list in verses 3 through 16 contains probably nine female names. And, of course, there's Phoebe in verses 1 and 2 as well. So ten females out of this list of 30-plus people also. And these people come from many different stations in life as well. Paul's list includes the city treasurer in Corinth, verse 23. It includes Prisca and Aquila who were industrial workers with their hands. And this list almost surely includes slaves as well, who were a large percentage of the population in Rome. People from every strata of life were Paul's fellow workers, just like our church, people from every walk of life, and they were vital to the advance of the gospel. I hope you see what I'm getting at and what Paul is highlighting here in this valuable chapter. Gospel work, whether it's being done in the community right around the local church, or whether we're sending the good news forth to the ends of the earth, gospel work is not done. Indeed, it cannot be effectively done by only a few select people. Paul's ministry could not have survived without the faithfulness of all sorts of ordinary people who considered themselves not merely church attendees, but fellow workers alongside the great apostle. And if the great apostle needed fellow workers, how much more do your leaders need fellow workers? How much more do our missionaries need help? I hope you think of that when you walk through those doors on a Sunday morning. The church needs me. These elders need my help. Do you think of that when you go to bed on Saturday night? Say to yourself, there's no question of me skipping out or sleeping in tomorrow because my church needs me there. I'm a fellow worker in Christ Jesus. Do you think of yourself as that? As someone who has 
a job to do for the sake of the gospel. Not only on Sundays, but on Monday mornings and Friday afternoons and so on. Is the great mission that Jesus has left with his church, that of making disciples of all nations, is that mission always in the front of your mind? Do you consider yourself a worker in that cause? Here in Romans 16, we find that the secret of Paul's success, the fact that he got the gospel to these far-off places, lay in the fact that he had dozens, probably hundreds of fellow workers. People who were differently gifted from him, but who considered God's work their own work, just the same as the great apostle. And this was the secret not only of Paul's success, but of churches like this one in Rome as well. At the beginning of the letter, Paul says to them, chapter 1, verse 8, Your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. The church in Rome, in other words, was becoming a model church. People knew about them. Why? Well, surely part of it was because Rome was the capital of the known world. But also, and even more importantly, their faith was being known throughout the whole world, it would seem, because the church at Rome was filled with fellow workers, ordinary people who saw God's work as their own high calling so that the church was a dynamic church a model church, an exemplary church. And I encourage you all to view your life in that way. To tell yourself, I'm a fellow worker. I have a niche in this advance of the gospel and in this local church. And like Persis, verse 12, I need to work hard in the Lord. God does great things through ordinary people who see themselves not merely as hearers of the gospel, not merely as members of a church or attendees, but as fellow workers with those who preach that gospel. A number of you surely see your calling as just that, and you're already hard at work in God's vineyard. And in fact, if I were to write my own Romans 16, your names, many of you would be on it. Thank you for that. And as Paul says elsewhere, let us excel still more. So then, we've emphasized the word fellow from verse 3. Paul wasn't alone in the gospel. We need partners in this work. But now let's also emphasize something else. Paul calls these various Christians in Romans 16, my fellow workers. My fellow workers. It's significant that Paul spends all of these verses in Romans 16 naming names. Because he could have just simply said, greet all the good folks in the church at Rome. I know you have a lot of hard workers in the gospel there. And that would have sufficed in many ways, wouldn't it? And we could have drawn encouragement from that kind of a statement. Uh, You know, when people stand up at these award ceremonies and say, well, I'm not going to name all the names because I'll leave someone out, but thank you all, you know who you are. That would have been good to do, right? But he names names. Why does he do that? Well, Paul doesn't speak generically about these people. He doesn't merely call them fellow workers in Christ Jesus. He calls them my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he had relationships with them. He knew their names. He remembered their names. They were a, a, a gospel family in some ways, though they lived in separate places. And so what I want to say briefly is that the church is not only meant to be a great gospel partnership, my fellow workers, but the church is also about relationship. Paul can call these people my fellow workers. 
Priscilla and Aqu- Prisca and Aquila, verse 3, are my fellow workers. Eponidas, verse 5, and Ampliatus in verse 8, and Stachus in verse 9 are all called my beloved. And in verse 13, Paul says, Rufus's mother is like my own. So when Paul calls these people my fellow workers, he's using that possessive word my, not like an employer with his employees, not like a celebrity with his entourage, not like a guru with his lackeys. He's using this word my like a man referring to his family. These are my people, my family, my beloved, my fellow workers. And I hope you can speak that way about the people in this room. And not just a few of them either. I hope that the circle of people that you can call my family, my fellow workers, is an ever-growing one. I hope there are many, many people that you can say, my beloved in the Lord, verse 8. In this room, in other churches, roundabout, and on the mission field too. Because Paul's Christian family extended not just to the location where he was today, but even to this church in Rome that he never visited in his life. The apostle had this gigantic Christian family. Some of them were like brothers to him. At least one of them was like a mother to him, verse 13. Timothy, we know, in verse 21, was like a son to Paul. And we ought to have many, many mothers in the faith and brothers in the faith and sons and so on. And that means that that some of us may need to open ourselves up a little more to that, not be spiritual loners. Others need to be on the lookout for those who are naturally introverted and invite them into friendship. And most of us need to be aware of always defaulting to the same sort of little cluster of familiar faces. Not to always sit in the same pew. Now that helps me when I'm preaching because I can tell who's here and who's not. You always sit in the same place. But if you always sit in the same place, you may not actually sit with people that you ought to be getting to know. Don't always sit in the same spot at the fellowship meals. That's even far more important. Don't always visit with the same people after church. Invite someone of a different generation for games or for dinner or for prayer. If Paul could think of 30-plus people to thank God for by name in two cities as far apart as Corinth and Rome, one of which cities he's never even visited then there's really no good reason why every person in this little church shouldn't know every other person and have a functional relationship with them such that you could call them my beloved. Now let me emphasize one other thing before we leave this second point. I suggest to you that one reason, probably a central reason, Paul had such relationships with so many people that he knew them so well and loved them so well was precisely because he worked with them. He doesn't call Prisca and Aquila my fellow worshipers, although that would have been true and marvelous, but more than that, he calls them my fellow workers. And the same could surely be said of so many others as well, Narius and his sister, Narcissus, Petrobus, and so on. Paul did more than just sit in the pews with these people, they had worked together, some of them on the mission field. They had served together, others of them in local church ministry. They'd done projects together for the sake of the gospel. They had labored together in prayer. And when you work beside someone, especially in things of the gospel, you become a family. And those of you who've done that, I think, will agree. Often the greatest Christian friendships are built this way as we labor together. 
Those of you who serve breakfast at the City Gospel Mission or who work together in the nursery or who serve together on the fellowship team almost assuredly have closer bonds with one another than you did before you began working together. The same is true for those who go on mission trips together or give out tracts in the community together or labor together in the prayer meeting and so on. Work leads to relationship. The church is meant to be one big, supportive, friendly, loving family. And one of the chief ways we become that kind of family is not only by being fellow worshipers in Christ Jesus, but fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And in fact, that's the final word that I want to emphasize. My fellow workers, Paul says, there's partnership needed. He can't go it alone. My fellow workers, he calls them. My beloved, my family. And then... Thirdly, my fellow workers. Workers. The Christian life is meant to be one of work. Hard gospel work. Now, it's true that we don't become Christians. We're not right with God by virtue of our work for God. No amount of service to God will cover our sins or make up for our wrongs. Only the cross of Christ, only the blood of Christ can do that. So Paul surely speaks rightly in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not as a result of works. That's good news, isn't it? That we're not saved because of how hard we've worked for the Lord, but because of Jesus' work on our behalf. And yet, Paul says that famously in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and then he goes on to say in the very next verse, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for them. God wants it to be said of us as it was of Mary in verse 6 and Persis in verse 12. They worked hard. Indeed, as Paul paints this masterful portrait of God's people here in Romans 16, he uses the words work and worker six different times. Just notice them with me. Priscilla and Aquila, or Prisca, as he says here, and Aquila, verse 3, are my fellow workers. Mary, verse 6, worked hard for you. Urbanus, verse 9, is our fellow worker. Tryphena and Tryphosa, verse 12, workers in the Lord. Persis, verse 12, was one who worked hard in the Lord. And Timothy, verse 21, is called my fellow worker. I think you get the point. Paul greatly valued hard work for the kingdom of God. And he greatly appreciated people who performed such work. And in light of Paul's commendations of working for the Lord, all of us should examine ourselves and say, can these kinds of things be said of me? Am I, like these women in verse 12, a worker in the Lord? Also, let me point out that Paul not only tells us that these people work, but in some cases he even tells us how they worked. We know, of course, that some of them were well-versed in the Scriptures and were able to teach others the Bible. Prisca and Aquila and Timothy fit that mold. Some of these folks were Paul's fellow missionaries as well. That seems to have been the case with Lucius and Jason and Sosipater in verse 21. 
Tertius, in verse 22, evidently had secretarial skills and wrote out Paul's correspondence to the church at Rome as Paul dictated it to him. Some of the church, uh, some of the folks uh, here in Romans 16 opened their homes, too, for church meetings and for traveling missionaries. We're told in verse 5 that at least one of the meetings in the church at Rome met in Aquila's house. And then in verse 23, we find that the church in Corinth, where Paul wrote this letter, met in the house of Gaius, and that this Gaius also not only hosted the church, but hosted Paul the missionary as well. And then of others in Rome, we're simply told that they worked hard, though we're not told how. What did Paul have in mind when he reminded these Christians in verse 6 that Mary worked hard for you? Well, he doesn't say. Maybe she was one of those ladies who took all the children to the side room and taught them the Bible and prayed with them for Paul the missionary. Or what about Tryphena and Tryphosa in verse 12? What made them workers in the Lord? Again, Paul doesn't say, but maybe they were the kind of people who would stay late at Aquila's house after the meeting was over, cleaning up the leftover dishes after Sunday supper, sweeping the floors, moving all the furniture back into place, and so on. And then there's Persis in verse 12, who worked hard in the Lord. And Urbanus, who, verse 9, was our fellow worker as well. Who were these fellows? Well, maybe they were deacons. Maybe they were the ones who visited the elderly and dropped off the food for the widows. Or maybe they were on the missions committee and they sent letters and they sent support to Paul and prayed regularly for them. We don't know exactly what most of these folks do, but we could say these sorts of things probably about all of these 30-plus people on Paul's list. Paul mentions them by name because they played an important role in the spread of the gospel in Rome and in Corinth and the support of Paul's missionary journeys around the world. So just look at the faces in the crowd here in Rome and in Corinth. Some of them serve the Lord with their heads and their knowledge of the Bible. Others of them serve the Lord with their homes as they open them up to the church and the missionaries. Still others of them serve the Lord with their hands. Probably like Mary who worked hard for you. But they all had a part in the work of the gospel. What's your part? You may think that you are really a very unimportant cog in the life of the church. Like your gifts are really not all that vital like your spot could easily easily be filled by someone else, like your station in life prevents you from really doing much for God. And you may therefore tell yourself, well, you know, it's not that big a deal if I don't have a particular job to do or if I do it with gusto or not, just going through the motions. It's not really that big of a change in the life of the church if I'm faithful to do my job Sunday after Sunday or not. You may tell yourself, I say, that you're not all that valuable to the kingdom, but those people who know your name, those people who benefit from your prayers, those people who receive your notes of encouragement, those children who profit from your care, those people who understand the importance of your particular part in the body will tell you that every individual counts and has value and is vital to the church's success, and therefore every individual will want to be a worker. In the Lord. Along these lines, consider this woman, Phoebe, whom Paul mentions in verses 1 and 2. She was not from the church in Rome, nor was she from the church in Corinth, but he tells us 
in verse 1 that she is a servant of the church which is at Sancria, which was a town not far from Corinth. And Paul introduces her to the Roman churches here in verse 1 probably because she was the one who delivered this letter from Paul's hand to theirs. She was probably the one who took this precious portion of the Bible and protected it and carried it all the way from Corinth to Rome. And because she did that, the Romans benefited from Paul's marvelous gospel summary, and we do too. In many ways, delivering Paul's mail wasn't that big of a task, don't you think? Phoebe didn't have to be extraordinarily gifted to be a mail carrier. Just faithful and willing and diligent, which is exactly what she apparently was. And God used this woman's willingness and her faithfulness and her diligence to pass the blessing of this epistle, not only to the church in Rome, but to two millennia of Christians who have benefited from it as well. Think of it. In that day when Paul put this letter into her hands, maybe he made a backup copy, but it's possible that the letter that he gave her was the only copy of this great epistle to the Romans that existed in the world. And it is in the hands of a normal Christian lady from Sancria about whom we know next to nothing. And I think she's a perfect picture to describe the message of this chapter. It is the normal Christians about whom we may know next to nothing who make the gospel go around the world and who make the gospel world go round. Not everyone will be an Apostle Paul, but anyone, anyone can be a Phoebe, willing and faithful to serve in whatever way is necessary. Not everyone will be an elder or a pastor or missionary, but every Christian ought to be a fellow worker alongside such men. So I just ask you again, what is your part? What has God called you to do for the sake of the gospel? And I urge you, whatever it is, to do it with all your might. You may not be the missionary, but you may be the Phoebe upon whom the missionary desperately relies and without whose faithfulness the missionary's work will be incomplete. Your prayers are important. Your giving is invaluable. Your letters of encouragement go much farther than you think. And more locally, You may not be the one standing up and preaching the gospel or teaching the class, but I can tell you from personal experience that preachers and teachers cannot do it alone. So much of what we're trying to do here, so much of our success in reaching our city for Jesus rises and falls not with Paul or Timothy or the elders of our church so much as, verse 15, with their fellow workers, people like Philologus and Julia, and Narius, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. This church will rise or fall with the people who invite friends, and teach Sunday school, and give their tithe, and witness to their co-workers, and give out tracts, and lead the music, and visit the sick, and clean the building, and handle the finances, and welcome the visitors, and watch the nursery, and reach out to the wayward, and pray for your elders and your deacons and your members as they serve alongside you. These kinds of things are what the folks in Romans 16 were doing, by and large. Nothing spectacular, but important. And I just want to encourage you to add your name to Paul's list. 
Our little list of names, it's true, will never be published like Paul's list is here. And our names will be even more unfamiliar to history even than those of men like Erastus and Quartus and so on. But God will see and God will know and your faithfulness will be recorded in the annals of heaven, which is all that really counts. Indeed, God himself will call you my fellow workers. Now let me ask you in closing, what is the secret of all this hard work among the believers at Rome? What kept these people going alongside Paul and alongside each other? I think we're given the strongest hint at the end of that phrase in verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers, in Christ Jesus. That's the secret of their success, and it's really no secret. It oughtn't be anyway. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus. These people, Prisca and Aquila and the others as well, weren't serving Paul mainly, though they were a great help to him. They weren't serving their local church mainly, though the church couldn't have gotten by without them. They were fellow workers in Christ Jesus. That was the main thing. These men and women worked so hard because they were working for him. The Jesus that Paul wrote about in the first 15 chapters of this letter. They worked so hard because they were working for the one about whom Paul wrote in Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. They were laboring for this Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, chapter 3. They were laboring in the strength that was given them by the one who, chapter 6, was raised from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. They were giving their all for the one who is the answer. When we find ourselves, chapter 7, doing the very things we hate and asking, who will set me free from the body of this death? The answer to that question at the end of chapter 7 is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why they were serving. Because they were serving, they were working in Christ Jesus. For the one who died for them. For the one who shed his blood for their souls. For the one who set them free from their sins and their slavery. For the one who, because he was alive, was now living his life in them. They worked so hard for Jesus because he had worked so hard for them. And so marvelously in them. And that's the key to Christian service, isn't it? We're able to work for Jesus and we're willing to work for Jesus because he is so willingly and so wonderfully worked for and in us. And so let me urge you as we conclude this evening to work so hard in the church, to so serve the missionaries, to so fulfill the ministry and the gifts that God has given to you that yes, Your pastor and elders will thank God for your diligence. And yes, even the Apostle Paul could put your list, your name on the list if he were to write an epistle to the church at Pleasant Ridge. But even more so, let me encourage you to work so hard in the church and to so serve the missionaries and to so fulfill the ministry and the gifts that God has given to you that the Lord Jesus himself would be delighted, will be delighted to call you my fellow workers.